Okay, turn over to Psalm 131. You find it in your Bible or your bulletin. Uh, next week, we will start the new year off with a new series uh, in Job. The intention is to go through Job. Um, so we'll see. I'll try not to bog us down too much as I'm prone to do, but through Job in a year or two, but um, today we're going to have a little bit of thought about the new year and turning to Psalm 131. Um, so let's pray. O great shepherd, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We ask that you refresh our souls and nourish our faith in the green pastures of your word, that we might live happy and holy lives before you. Amen. Stand once again for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word from Psalm 131. A song of ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What is going to happen in 2024? That's the question I would like to know the answer to. I'm sure you all would like to know that as well. I think um, I would like to get a packet of information at the beginning of every year, like a, a blueprint, maybe a 3D virtual walkthrough of 2024, so I know what to expect. Now, I have every confidence that God has written the book of the future in meticulous detail and that there's no one better for the job, but I'm afraid that that book is not one that he chooses. To, to, to open and read to us. So as a New Year's Eve uh, message, my aim is to prepare you, even in some small way, to live holy and contented lives in 2024 before the face of God. Uh, there's much anxiety and inner turmoil that stems from how we think about the future. And it's honestly not usually the circumstances themselves that cause us this anxiety and inner turmoil, but it's, it, it comes from a constant temptation to peek inside God's secret will. To know the future before it happens. And this psalm points us to really the skill of calming and quieting our souls by resting and hoping in the Lord. And really, that information and that skill is far better than the 2024 packet of information that I would like to have. So we're going to look at uh, this psalm under three headings this morning. The first one is the anxiety of ambition. King David, he opens this psalm by addressing Yahweh with two uh, comments about his posture. His heart, he says, is not lifted up and his eyes are not raised too high. 
It's interesting, in other passages, lifting up our hearts and raising up our eyes is viewed as a positive thing. Um, Lamentations 3.41, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, we're familiar with this one. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. And Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 123, verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So that seems like a good thing, but David's saying, I don't, my eyes are not raised too high. My heart is not lifted up. And these last two examples I gave from Psalm 121 and 123, uh, this takes on a special significance based on where they are in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Does, does the psalmist there mean to tell us that we should lift up our eyes to the hogbacks, to, to Mount Sopris, and there find God, find the presence of God? Well, in, in some sense, we observe the beauty and the majesty of God by looking to the hills. Um, but the psalmist has something different in mind in this psalm. Um, in, in the Old Testament, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was above everywhere else. A pilgrim to Jerusalem would always have to ascend, to ascend the hill of the Lord. So the people would journey to Jerusalem for, for worship, to go to the feast days. And they would ascend the hill of the Lord. So these psalms, Psalm 121, Psalm 123, are part of a psalm, a group of psalms called the Songs of Ascension, of Ascent. And these psalms were written by various people at various times, but they were collected in this altar to serve as, as psalms of worship as people ascended the hill of the Lord. So suddenly, I lift my eyes to the hills takes on New significance in that context, doesn't it? As we ascend to the presence of God himself in Zion. The Psalms of Ascent are, are interesting in that you begin in the first Psalm, in Psalm 120, uh, in despair and, and removed from the presence of the Lord out in the wilderness. And then by the end of the Psalms of Ascent in um, Psalm 136, they're worshiping in the presence of the Lord in the temple. They have Ascended to the Lord. So that to say, even in the Psalms of Ascent, uh, this idea of lifting up our eyes and our hearts to the hills, to the heavens, has a positive connotation. But David views it as positive, a positive thing that his eyes are not lifted up, that his heart is not raised too high. And that's because that language can also refer to pride. And as the king, David, I think, is particularly vulnerable to the sin of pride. It's the kind of pride we see King Nebuchadnezzar succumbing to in Daniel 4. Um, he's, we read there in Daniel 4, at the end of the 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. He succumbed to the pride of a king. And we read in chapter 5, uh, well, in, through chapter 4, that God casts him down and bring, reduces him to a kind of animal insanity because of his pride. And then in chapter 5, this is how his pride is described. But when his heart was lifted up, 
There's that language of our hearts being raised up. That's pride. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. So King David in Psalm 131 is is contrasting um, against that, that idea of pride, of raising up our eyes, of approaching the Lord in a posture of pride. He comes instead, he says, with a stance of meekness, of humility. And applying David's experience then to the people ascending to, to the holy hill of the Lord as they sing this song, as they lift up their eyes to the hills, as, as they begin to approach the Lord, they too must approach the Lord in a spirit of humility as they come into his presence. A, a posture of, uh, a, a prostrate posture before the Lord. I think similarly, we in Christ, as we're brought in him to Mount Zion, to the Holy of Holies, we come with a confident expectation uh, in the hope of the Lord, but we also likewise should come with a spirit of, of reverence, of awe, a posture of prostration before him. We are privileged to call God Father, but we recognize that we come into the presence of the Father who is also the judge of all the universe. So as we enter into the presence of God, uh, I think our humanity begins to flare up and we think, well, yes, now I have an inside track with the man upstairs. He's going to tell me what to do. And our pride flares up such that we think we have the privilege and the right to peek behind the curtain of God's providence. And again, I think that this, I can imagine this being a particular temptation to the king. You had that responsibility. What is going to happen? How can I take care of this nation? But he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We frequently fall into the sin of presumption. The the idea that at first blush it should be obvious how the details of my life and the things I'm observing in the world fit into God's bigger picture. We think we have a right to that. But Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote a whole book, Ecclesiastes, about how he couldn't figure it out. So by contrasting this, this probing in verse 1 against the calming and quieting of his soul in verse 2, it is as if David is saying to us, that the source of the disquiet in your soul is not what you think it is. The problem itself is not the source of the anxiety. It's your lack of trust manifesting in a demand for more and more information from God. Fundamentally at its core, the sin is the desire to be like God or to be God. To have the maps and the blueprints and the the 3D virtual walkthrough of our life laid out in front of us. Um, In the book Knowing God, J.I. Packer, he has a pair of really powerful, he calls them um, transportation illustrations. Uh, He says we can go to a train station and we can observe the goings-on of the trains and get a sense for how the system works. But if we really want to understand it, we have to be brought kind of back behind the scenes to see the panel with the map and the lights where every train is to really see behind what's going on. 
And he says that's how we tend to view wisdom. Is that wisdom is a, a view behind the scenes. But that's not biblical wisdom. Instead, he says wisdom is actually more like driving a car. He says, you don't ask yourself why the road should narrow or screw itself into a dog leg wiggled just where it does, nor why that van should be parked where it is, nor why the driver in front should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. You simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. The effect of divine wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in the actual situations of everyday life. That's, that's wisdom. That's going through life by the grace of God, not knowing what's to come, but doing the right thing because by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we would find such peace if we would learn to let go of the constant need to, to hold all the cards. To have the information so that we can gain control. Because the, the trials and the blessings of this life will always ebb and flow. We don't have control over that. But we can learn to rest in God's providence so we can be content in whatever circumstance. This is, the, in essence, the, the fruit of spiritual maturity. We are to grow rooted, firmly planted, and not shaken by every gale and storm that confronts us. So we would do well to learn with David that there are some things that are beyond us. Uh, this is a lesson Job learned. Job says, who is, <clears throat> in Job 42, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And Paul's attitude to the secret counsel of God is really just to worship God. Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I, I call this point the anxiety of ambition. And unless you're familiar maybe with the older sense of that word ambition, you might be asking, isn't ambition good? Should we be lazy? But I think that the older sense of the word ambition captures well this combination of pride and probing that is at the root of much of our anxiety. Now, first of all, we should be conscious that just as a rule that we as Americans are obsessed with ambition in any sense of the term. Probably in some ways to a fault. Of course, we also want to recognize that the Bible does condemn laziness. It calls us to live lives of rich and hard work with purpose and intention to do all to the glory of God. I teach Greek here at the school and I have the kids memorize a catechism and in an effort to make them work hard. I give them this proverb, which has mixed results, but... Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So we recognize that we're not talking about being lazy or lackadaisical here. We're meant to work hard. But in the sense of the older definition of the word ambition, I found the Webster's Dictionary from 1913 
to provide a helpful summary, it says that the word is from the Latin um, ambitio, which means going around, especially of candidates for office in Rome, to solicit votes. Hence, desire for office or honor. So that's the root of, of the word. And the act of going around to solicit or obtain an office or any other object of desire. This, another definition is an eager and sometimes inordinate desire for preferment, honor, superiority, power, or the attainment of something. That, that's the older sense of the word ambition. I, I want that and I want it for myself. Uh, they have uh, an example in the in the Webster's Dictionary of Cardinal Wolsey uh, saying to Oliver Cromwell, he said, Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambition. By that sin fell the angels. The root of the sin of ambition is for us the same as the angels. That is, I think I can do better for myself and for others than God. Calvin says, those who yield themselves up to the influence of ambition will soon lose themselves in a labyrinth of perplexity. Uh, the Apostle Peter also reminds us that anxiety is something that really grows in the soil of pride. First um, Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's the means by which we humble ourselves is by casting our cares on God. The proud heart says, no, I'll take care of my own anxiety. But humble yourselves, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. So the first thing I want to emphasize this morning in preparation for 2024 is a simple reminder that ambition will never outrun anxiety. You can never gain enough inside knowledge. You can never sort out God's providence with enough clarity. You will never solve enough of your problems to arrive at a sense of calm. Because that's what we think, right? I'll figure it all out and then I'll be calm. But anxiety... Anxiety always outruns ambition. Instead, David would call us to turn to the Lord for peace, as we see here in verses 2 and 3. So, David employs in these verses perhaps the most comforting of all imagery, a child in the arms of his mother. Um, and so the second heading here is that the quiet rest of the children of God. The quiet rest of the children of God. In verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Notice I find this fascinating. Who is the actor in verse 2? It's David. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. So that, that's one of the biggest jobs parenting very young children, isn't it? It's one of the best lifelong skills we can teach them. That you are not controlled by your emotions and desires. You are called by God to control them. David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. 
in response to whatever event inspired David to write this psalm, rather than becoming inflamed with pride and trying to pick the lock on God's book of providence, he says, wait just a minute. I know in whom I have believed. I have calmed and quieted my soul. What does that look like to him? Well, it seems to me it looks like a hurt or scared toddler running instantly into the arms of his mother. He runs to the Lord. And we know this is what he means because in verse 3, his conclusion is, all of Israel should likewise hope in the Lord. Uh, the weaned child is, is the child who's no longer coming to his mother for milk. He, he's purely there for the peace, the comfort, the joy, the warmth of his mother's presence. That, that's that stage of life when the child is still helpless, very young, and still dependent, but is able to express and enjoy a degree of affection that transcends pure need. The weaned child is not a person who's going to try to probe the inner mechanics of what's scary or what's, what's painful. They just know what's safe. They run to their arms of their mother. The question is then, I think, what, how do we do that? How do we run into the arms of the Lord? How, how do we enjoy the calming presence of the Lord? And I think some people will say, well, see, we can't, David says we can't figure it all out, so we'll, we're just, it's arrogant to try, so, and they use that as a kind of an excuse for anti-intellectualism, or, and, and thus diminish, I think, the comforting power of God's revelation of himself in his word turning instead to a more mystical experience. But we should understand that calmness and quietness of soul comes when we lay down the locked book of God's unfolding providence and we pick up the books that he's given us, the books of general revelation and special revelation of nature and scripture. This is where God has given himself to us. We know God through revelation. This is what Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. The, the explanatory power of the scriptures. The book of nature read through the scriptures as well. It, it just has extraordinary power in giving us confidence in a world that seems so topsy-turvy. We have so much more to go on in trying to discern God's will than the world does. Uh, there's somebody I, I like to listen to every now and then. He, he uh, interviews some of the smartest and, and most powerful people in the world. Uh, a few examples of his guests that he's had on, Elon Musk. Uh, Jared Kushner, Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, professors at Stanford, MIT. Uh, this, this guy's not a believer. He'll almost always ask, what do you think is the meaning of it all? And it's funny, the smartest people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, consistently I find their answers to be very well thought out, brilliantly worded ways of saying, I don't know. As Christians, God has given us the answers to the big questions. 
The meaning of it all is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you want to know where that catechism comes from, read Psalm 16. We don't know how all the pieces and parts fit together. We don't know why things happen the way they do. But He's given us the broad strokes of the big picture. And and what a gift that is, that we all know the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, Indeed, this is God's will, that you be sanctified. So I think part of, at least part of, flinging ourselves into the loving arms of God and finding quiet and calm is plunging ourselves into His revealed character found in His Word. It's a Word that speaks to us hundreds of promises. It provides us the freeing guardrails of His law. It recounts many of His past providences on which we can base confidence in His future providences. And it it opens our eyes to the beauty of His glory. So I think one of the biggest reasons why He does not let us peek into that book of unfolding providences is that we might learn to trust Him. To trust and obey. Uh, Packer again says, Thus the kind of wisdom that God waits to give those who ask Him is a wisdom that will bind us to Himself. God's not going to give us a wisdom that allows us to flee from Him. He's going to give us a wisdom that causes us to run to Him. He says it's a wisdom that will find expression in a spirit of faith and a life of faithfulness. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, his own experience bore this out in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 8-11. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So I think there's that 20th century gospel hymn that kind of maybe seems a little bit trite to us, but I think it captures David's point beautifully here. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Finally, as in in most of the Psalms of Ascent, there's a, a personal, experiential element of the Psalm that has been expanded into a corporate application. Um, and this is the, the third heading, uh, Hope, Exclusive and Eternal. Hope, Exclusive and Eternal. Uh, verse 3, and this is grounded in everything he's already said. So we might even say, Therefore, O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. I think the, the flip side of the coin of, of these issues of pride and probing and disquieted souls is this word that, that David uses here, hope. This pride and probing or ambition are fundamentally misplaced hopes. I hope I will achieve success. I hope I will have a satisfying job and a good family. I hope nothing terrible happens in 2024. I hope the rulers above us get their act together. And none of these is wrong desires. And in fact, if there's something, there's, there's something amiss if we don't desire these things. However, they are poor substitutes for ultimate hope. 
Because each of one of these things is, is fickle and fragile and prone to disappoint. And anxiety and the disquieted heart expose our misplaced hopes when we freak out, when we lose them, or when we are so afraid that we might lose them. That's why our Lord Jesus in Matthew 6 comforts us with this really a simple admonishment. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I've always found comfort in that. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble. I've also found that to be very true. Uh, James uh, plays off of the same concepts. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a myth that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So King David here, he calls the nation of Israel to put all of their eggs in one basket. Don't, don't try to raise yourself up in the ambition of pride and probing. That will only lead to anxiety. If you want peace, if you want quiet and calm in your soul, hope in the Lord says from this time forth and forevermore all other hopes are tenuous and shifting but the lord is the same yesterday today and forever he is immutable and eternal it's a secure hope to, to place our rest in the psalm likewise calls us to lay aside our ambitions of pride and probing into god's secret counsel and to calm and quiet our souls by resting in Him. By resting in the secure hope of the Lord. And I would just add that we have abundantly more reason than David did to hope in the Lord because we have abundantly more revelation in the Word made flesh in Christ. We have the risen Christ who stands in the presence of God for us. Hebrews says about that in Hebrews 6, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is the anchor of hope for our souls. We, we all have hopes and aspirations and desires for this coming year, and as well we should. But no hope but the Lord himself is so sure and so steadfast as to be an anchor for the soul. And no wind or wave of trial will be strong enough to budge the calm and quiet peace of the soul that is lodged in the caring arms of God. So therefore, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.